sing that one tonight. I thought you were going to sing the other one. There are days like that. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I asked my grandson tonight to play a little song on the piano for me, and he told me he didn't feel like it. Just, nope, forget it. And that's a spirit of rebellion, which sooner or later shows in the hearts of all people. We've got to ask the Lord to take that away. We've got to pray. Turn to chapter 12 in the book of Mark. It's going to start with a parable in the book of Mark. Parables teach a lesson. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the vine, wine vat, 
and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's bow our heads. Father, another time we bow before thee. As we have read thy word and we ask you to just teach us something from it. We know that we don't get anywhere, anything out of it that we should. The depths we never probe, we just touch the surface. But we ask you because of the simplicity of our minds and hearts and our understandings, teach us just some little thing. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. We have had this parable before, and when we went through Matthew, but it's worded a little bit differently, and uh, sometimes when they're worded a little different, there are just little certain angles you can get about it. Now, first of all, the vineyard and the man have to do with God and Israel. Israel is the vineyard. Now, we will read that one more time to you. Turn to Isaiah 5, the fifth chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 5, We'll read verses 1 through 7. But you see, verse 7 will explain to you exactly the answer we're looking for. In fact, we can read verse 7 first, and then we'll read how the Lord planted a vineyard. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. There's what it's all about. Now let's read verses 1 through 6. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Wild grapes are bitter tasting. They're not sweet like those that we grow on behind on our farms. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor dig, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. And we've already read verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plan. Israel and Judah make up all of the Israel or the nation of the Jews. So now he's talking about the nation of Israel and the men of Judah in a parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine vat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Israel was started by God telling Abraham, get out from this country, leave your family, I will show you where to go, you're mine. Of course, we should know the story of Abraham, how he traveled and traveled and traveled, finally had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob, and Jacob had twelve sons, and there's the birth of the nation of Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel are the twelve tribes of Jacob. Now, that's how it started out. They went into the nation of Israel, into the land of Israel, rather, of Palestine, settled it. The Lord gave them victories over their folks, and it soon became the nation of Israel. Okay. So we're finding now that the Lord had done all that for them. And then... In verse 1 it says, And he went into a far country. The Lord left them well set up, a beautiful nation, called it his vineyard, and the men of Judah were his pleasant plant. Well, he began to send prophets to Israel because Israel, when left without leaders, like in the book of Judges, the Lord made some of the judges leaders, but they they didn't do well. Every time, in fact, the book of Judges is so sad. Israel gets beat up, they get beat up, they get beat up, they get wiped out time and time again because they're such a sinful little bunch of people. They're a smaller nation than anybody else, and they have God's rules, they have God's leaders leading them, and they rebel against it. They hate God's rules. Still, they're his people. And that's why they continue to be chastised, because they are his people. So verse 2 says, And at the season he sent the husbandmen a servant, maybe uh, just any one of the prophets earlier, that he might receive from the husbandmen of the, of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, beat him, and sent him away empty. And uh, verse 4 says, And again he sent him another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another and they killed, and him they killed, and many others. All the prophets 
say each one that wrote one of the books of the Old Testament, you just want to count them, all of them he sent, beating some and killing others. Take a look at Romans 11.3. That's kind of a, a synopsis of uh, what went, went on through those years. Start verse 2. We read 11, 2, and 3. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. You see, that's one man's viewpoint. Even though he's a prophet, even though he's God's favorite at the time, he's the only one carrying God's message at the time. Look what the Lord says to him, verse 4, But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Boy, I can just see Elijah saying, Well, where are they? Well, you know, the Lord had them hidden out. Okay, now let's look at verse 6, Mark 12. Having yet, therefore, one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also unto them, saying, They'll reverence my son. Now, time and time again in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that God would send to Israel a Messiah, one who would bless them, who would lead them, who would free them. And so finally, God himself came down in human flesh. Let's look at John 3.16, because it describes that God so loved the world. He says, they will reverence my son. He's my only begotten, my well-beloved son. And John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, when it says he gave him, what did he give him to do? He gave him to die. He gave him to suffer. He gave him to shed his blood as a substitute sacrifice for sinners. That's the giving. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You know, I always see the opposite side of this scripture. That anybody who does not believe perishes. You see, it stands to reason. Those that believe don't perish. What about the rest? They perish. How many people in this world believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Not very many. Or you might say our whole country. But say, if everybody in our country did believe, how about all the Asians and all the Indians and all the Mohammedans, all the Arabs, all the Africans, all of those, so many that have never even heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are unbelievers. They're all classified as unbelievers. You know what happens to them? They perish. They perish forever and ever in the lake of fire. You see, you can't 
picture that in your mind. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what God teaches happens to people that don't come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They burn forever and ever. They never die. They're punished by burning forever in the lake of fire, never to see the face of God again. Okay? God so loved the world. We've got another scripture to show you about God sending his son into the world, into this garden, into Israel, his um, vineyard. Turn to Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. So he didn't send him here as a king. He didn't send him here as an angel. He didn't send him here with any specific advantages, except no sin. See, that's not supposed to be an advantage in this life. You can sin with a high hand and get away with it. You're supposed to be one of the favored ones. God sent his son in what he calls the fullness of time when Israel was a conquered nation, when Roman soldiers walked up and down the streets and just had their way with all the people. Now, what was the reason? Verse 5. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Were you ever under the law? Did you ever read the law and see how guilty you are because of the law? That's the reason for the law, you know. The reason for the law is for you to shut your mouth that you become guilty. You see, but what the Jews did, they took the law and tried to keep it. Said, oh, this is okay. This is our God. Now, our God gave us these rules. If we keep them the best we can, we'll be okay. No, that don't work. The best you can is not good enough. And God tells you that very, very clearly. For all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All your righteousnesses, not not the bad things you do, not your mistakes, not not the things you don't know about or something you've failed in. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They have to be redeemed. And the only way you can be redeemed is by knowing that you're guilty of breaking God's rules. You're guilty of breaking his laws. And when God regenerates your heart and saves you, you automatically, quickly become adopted into God's family. I look at it as a uh, as something that's necessary because most people that come to Christ have to leave their family, leave their church, leave their friends, leave everything in order to come to Christ. And so they got no place to go and God saves them. God says, hey, I'll adopt you into my family. You're one of mine. 
You belong to me. You are now a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, walk after Christ. Forget everybody else. Walk after the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get to verse 7, Mark 12. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. Can you believe this? Does this sound even human? Do you understand that the human heart is not what we call human? Usually when somebody does something very wonderful or very helpful, you know, to a cause or to a person, we say, he has such a human heart. You just read what the human heart is like when it comes to God and his Son. If they could only get rid of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'd be tickled to death. Then we'll take over. This is a satanic heart speaking. This is the heart of everybody until God regenerates it. They can't stand God's holiness. They can't stand his rules. They can't stand the sovereignty of God for God owning the vineyard. God developed the vineyard. He built it. We read about how he did it all. And then they turn around and they bear sour grapes. Can't stand the owner. Let's take it away from him. How does our Bible describe this to us? Well, turn to John 11. Look at verse 50. John 11, verse 50. Maybe we can get a clearer understanding by starting with verse 47. You see, that's a new paragraph mark there. The paragraph and the thought will start there, so let's try. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. You see what councils are good for, huh? Trying to put somebody away. And said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him, let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And a Roman shall come and take away both our place and nation. Kind of afraid that the Romans would think there was a rebellion going on and would really clamp down on them. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. Now what he's saying is, let's kill him, and we'll save our nation. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Even though he said it, he didn't know that it was a prophecy, you see. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together and one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Isn't that hard to believe? Verse 57. 
Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it, that they might take him. Boy, the whole nation, the whole religious world, up against the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that gave them their religion for starters. He is God of the Old Testament. He is the one whose finger wrote on the two tables of stone and gave them the commandments. And the natural, normal, religious heart wants to kill him. All right, let's get back to Mark. Mark 12. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Let's turn to Acts 3. Look at verse 13. Acts 3, 13. Peter, Peter's preaching. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his Son, Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Boy, that was a story. How mob psychology can work with people. They were there witnessing that Pilate said, I find this man innocent. He has done no wrong. And the Jewish leaders, the high priest, and the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the Herodians, the religious bunch, holler out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And so the people join in. Well, these are the religious leaders. These are the ones we're responsible to. They're, we're the ones that go to their church. They must be right. Oh, Peter lays it on him. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. You went right along with your rulers. When Pilate was determined to let him go, but ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Yeah, they said, let Barabbas go. Crucify Christ. Barabbas was a murderer. Isn't that interesting? Turn over one page to Acts 5.30. Two pages. Two pages to Acts 5.30. Peter preaching again. The God of your, of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. 
And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. Do they like that kind of preaching? Straightforward? And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Still happens today. People, people don't want to hear the truth of God's word. Verse 8. Took him, killed him, cast him out of the vineyard. They didn't even kill him in the vineyard. They took him just outside the camp at a place called Golgotha. It was just outside Jerusalem. Well, our Lord asked a question. You see, this is all prophecy concerning our Lord and it hadn't happened yet. But it's exactly what had happened and was going to happen. Verse 9, what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and give the vineyard to others. Did that ever happen? Well, finally, in 70 AD, the Lord had enough of the Jews saying, Let his blood be on us and on our children. That was the cry at crucifixion time. Those who said that had no idea that God would take them at their word. 70 AD, the Roman army levels Jerusalem, levels the temple. Not a single stone of the temple was left standing one on top of the other. That's how they flattened. Took a lot of work. I bet you the Roman soldiers griped and bellowed and hollered about, why in the world we have to work from morning to night moving these big old stones? They're not going anywhere. They did. They moved every single one of them. was not a stone set upon a stone in that magnificent temple that took over 60 years to build. The Lord destroyed. The Jews were scattered. The land was a wilderness for close to 2,000 years. It was overrun by Turks, by Arabs. Jewish people weren't even there. Finally, the British took it over. And somewhere after World War II, a few Jews scattered back. They had a terrible time. But finally, 1948, enough folks got there by hook or by crook. And they became a nation once again, like the Bible said they would. They would be gathered together again. They're gathered together in unbelief. And we're still waiting for the end of that generation that started in 1948. We're very close to the end of a generation. Forty-five years considered a generation in some parts of the scriptures. Something big should happen this year or next year. Something very big should happen. And it is happening. It's happening before your very eyes and you can't see it. Peace treaty signed between Israel and the Arabs. Never has anything like that happened before, but it's a false peace treaty. It's not a real one. You can't trust the Arabs. 
for anything. They just want to get in, get armed, so they can fight to Jews again. That's their whole intent. But it's, something's happening. Weird things are going to happen over there, and they're just getting set up. Which means that the end, at the end of the church on earth is getting close. There's a few more folks to get saved, and that's it. When the last elect soul is saved in this dispensation, we're out of here. The Lord will come back, open the graves, take his people out, change the living believers, and leave this to Antichrist to set up a great reign of his for three and a half years. That's when the two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, will come to Jerusalem and will be the preachers. They'll be called the two witnesses. There will be 144,000 Jews whom the Lord will seal and they will preach and many of them will be slain. The two witnesses can't be slain until close to the end of their ministry at the three and a half years and finally Antichrist overcomes them and cuts off their heads. Their bodies lay for three and a half days on the streets of Jerusalem because they will not bury them. The TV cameras will be playing on them and their pictures will be sent all over the world. And people will rejoice and send gifts one to another just as if it was Christmas time. And then, while the cameras are focused on those two bodies laying there, the heads pop back on them, they stand up and they disappear out of sight. And there's another resurrection or a rapture at that time of all the dead who were killed for the Lord's cause in the tribulation. They join the church and then it's ball game after that. The Lord Jesus comes back, sets a chain upon Satan, binds him for a thousand years and he rules and reigns on earth for a thousand years. And even though we're under a wonderful rule of righteousness and peace. The hearts of people are never changed. We find that at the end of the thousand years that Satan is let out and he can gather him an army that just can't be numbered from all over the world. And once again they try to attack the Lord Jesus Christ at Jerusalem. Well, there's no fight, there's no battle. There's there's no opposition to our Lord Jesus Christ. All he does is call fire down from out of heaven, destroys the whole army. Destroys everybody who isn't one of his. And that's going to go into the millions. You see, the story's told. We don't have to guess what's going to happen. This is in the book. Telling you what's in the book, how God is going to destroy the husbandmen and give the vineyard unto others, and then he tells us the rest of the story like Paul Harvey does in the book of Revelation. Verse 10. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Who's the builders? Israel. The, the leaders of Israel's religion. They're supposed to be the builders. 
They reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Strange, huh? Like a guy coming home from war, so delighted, it's over, comes back to his family. His wife then married somebody else, moved off with the kids and nobody. That's our Lord coming to Israel. Born in Israel, from Jewish parents, Jewish mother, wonderful stepfather, Joseph. And they reject him, the whole family, even the kids that Mary had, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Let's read a little bit about that stone. First Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. First Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. To whom coming? As unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that that's you, believer, a lively stone, part of a spiritual house? You have a holy priesthood because you have access to the throne of grace to offer up spiritual sacrifices and thanksgiving. Acceptable to God, how? By Jesus Christ. You always pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. No prayer is acceptable except it goes through the mediator. People don't understand that. I told you this morning about a Catholic priest just yesterday, nay, day before yesterday, two days ago, whatever, we were at a banquet prayed all kinds of fancy holy words, O thou most holy God, thou ruler of the universe, and all this, never mention the Lord Jesus Christ. His prayer didn't get any higher than his ceiling. That was a high ceiling, too. So he did get a lot further than most people do. Verse 6, chapter 2, 1 Peter, Wherefore? Also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Wait a minute, is that a man's word? Do he men, do macho men use that word precious? This is Peter who cursed and swore that he didn't know the Lord Jesus. The old cursing fisherman. Now he's using words like precious. Women use that word about little babies. Look how precious. The real definition of precious is how precious the Lord Jesus Christ is to a believer. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Not only 
a stone, but the main stone of the building, the chief cornerstone. Verse 8, And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. That's how you stumble at the word, by not believing it, and by contradicting it by your actions in your life. Well, is God disappointed? Is he put out because people don't believe? Well, look at the rest of that verse. Whereunto also they were appointed. You know what that means? That means just exactly like all of the elect are chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ and ordained to have eternal life. All the others, the unbelievers, are appointed to the lake of fire. You say, that's pretty tough. It may be. But you have the gospel. You have the Bible. You have all the invitations from God himself to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no reason for you to be disobedient. There's no reason for any of us to be unbelievers. So in reality, you have a choice. But whatever way you choose, you'll be held responsible for. Believers are given credit for believing. Unbelievers are given punishment for not believing. God is very, very loving to those that come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But those that start out and fall back and never come, he's not disappointed in it because they were appointed to what they do. You see, God is sovereign. We don't know the mind of people. We don't know the mind of God except for what is taught to us in the scriptures. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ as a stone, as a chief cornerstone, as the rock that we can fall upon and not him fall upon us, is precious to our hearts. He's the one that made satisfaction for our sins. You know, that's the most important item in all of our life, is to know that our sins have been forgiven. And the only way we can know our sins are forgiven is to know that our sins were paid for. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood to pay for sin. But you've got to know the one that did it. Sinners are invited to come to Christ. He says, come unto me. Now, if there was no other promise or no other invitation in the gospel or in the Bible, period, that's enough. God himself has said, come unto me, so come. Forget friends, forget relatives, forget people, your kids, forget mom and dad, forget the whole shot. 
you come to Christ. He says, I'll give you rest. And on top of that, he says, I give unto them eternal life. Isn't a person foolish not to come to Christ? Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon this teaching tonight, the parable of the vineyard. We ask that thou will have taught our hearts. Each one may learn something different as long as we learn that our Lord Jesus Christ died in our place and that thou art well satisfied with the sacrifice that he made, with the shedding of his blood, that no one has to hide their head and be ashamed because thou art well satisfied with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless these people here and those that are here by tape, families that aren't here that should be. Bless those sinners nourishing, their, licking their wounds and wondering where they are, what they're doing.